0: Let us take a moment to hear our Father's word, found in Second Corinthians, chapter five, beginning with verse nine. Um, Second Corinthians, written to the church in Corinth, the church that had been founded when the apostle Paul had gone and, through great, great struggle, <laughs> through great struggle, he had brought the gospel to them, and a church had been started. Um, Acts chapter eighteen tells about it, and all sorts of trouble had happened afterwards too. <laughs> And uh, today we read something that is a bit of a light of fire under their seats text about how we're supposed to live as followers of Jesus. Second Corinthians chapter five we will begin with verse nine. Let us stand and remember that this is the word of our father. We make it our goal to please him. Whether we are at home in the body or away from it for. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. Uh, down to verse 14. Four, Christ's love compels us. Because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though once we regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation we are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us and this is the word of God thanks be to God you may be seated when I was a boy I used to spend several weeks every summer in the most rural parts of West Virginia It's all rather rural to us, but the most rural parts of West Virginia, Pocahontas County, where my mother's family is from. And I lived with my uncle Bob, who was an agriculturalist. He was an engineer who worked with the tourist industry of the state of West Virginia. Uh, He built and maintained fishing ponds for tourism. It was really a fun place for me to be in the summers. He would pull me, he was a big man, pull me out of bed by my feet at about 5 in the morning and take me to one of these ponds where he would work and I would fish. As I was thinking about uh, today's message, I thought about one particular day. It was unforgettable for me uh, when he took me and he said, Greg, today I'm going to show you one of my failures. And when I got there and I saw that pond, I'll tell you, it was a failure. Um, I looked at that pond. It was covered with green scum. There were insects flying all around it. When we got anywhere close to it, the stench of that thing was unmistakable. I doubt that anything could have lived in that pond, but if it did and I had caught it, I would not have eaten it. I will tell you that. Uh, he tried to explain to me as a boy what had happened. And some of you who are engineers can understand it far better. He said, Greg, look, it's, obvious that this pond was built with sufficient opportunity for inflow of water and it can it can maintain water but we didn't build it with the sufficient opportunity to have an outflow of water so when the water comes in it just sits there it just sits there and when water simply sits there and doesn't flow outward it becomes stagnant he called it a dead pond incapable of sustaining The kind of life that they wanted for the fish. Why did I think about that when I thought about Lake Avenue? (laughs) I don't want us to be one of those dead ponds. Um, I think that that is a parable of our lives as Christians and a parable of the church. Uh, Because God has built us so that as he does his work in us, we must have this opportunity to receive what we are doing now is is essential to our growth as Christians. We must gather and hear the word of God. We must gather and offer our praise to him. It's a part of our growth, but we cannot simply receive. We have been made so that what we know, what we receive must flow out into Pasadena, into the San Gabriel Valley and into the entire world. Uh, Real worship is this. We receive so that we can give. We gather on a Sunday morning so that we can go. During these past 12 years, uh, as I've traveled to many churches, I have learned something. This may frighten you. I have learned how to kill a church. Do you know how? Just get all of our energies and attentions focused inwardly. It almost doesn't matter what the issue is. It can be something good. Uh, The style of worship, uh, building plan, bylaws and constitution. It can be any of those things. Get all of our attention focused inwardly that those are the important things so that we are not living the gospel in this world and showing people the transforming power of Christ in the world and we will become like that dead pond. Jesus said we're salt and light. You just bring all the salt into one place and we just parch one another's throats. Bring all the light into one place and we just blind one another. Salt and light must go out and make a difference in the world into which God places us. And the remarkable truth that I want to look at from 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is this. That the same people, that is us, the same people who are being reconciled through faith in Christ must at the same time become those who then carry God's message of hope and reconciliation to the world. The same people who are in process where God isn't finished with us yet, and we sometimes feel so weak, the same people that he does his work in as he's working in us, he then calls us to go out and in our weakness become his messengers to the world. Is that shocking for you? You don't look as shocked as I think you should. Maybe that's the nature of a nine o'clock service. (laughs) Now, we know this, those of us who have been longtime churchgoers, we know this, that we must share what we have learned. We must live the compassion of Christ in this world. But we don't always do it. I think sometimes it's because of fear of, of what people will say or what they'll think of us when we claim to be Christians, I think sometimes it's our own sense of inadequacy. Uh, We think, I have my own problems. Uh, I'm having problems with my marriage, with my family. Uh, I have all sorts of problems with my personal life. How can I be one that God uses? And yet the Apostle Paul would be one who acknowledged that he was like that too. And in his weakness, when he would simply be willing to do what God called him to do, he knew the strength Of the Lord through him. That's how this church was formed. Now. What would he say to us. As our inclinations are simply to come and try to receive and not go. Well that's what he does in 2nd Corinthians. You see. He had founded that church. And after he had left. (laughs) Through great pain. And after he had left some so-called super apostles came in afterwards. They really weren't super apostles. But they thought of themselves that way. And they thought that they were better speakers than Paul. They got all the attention of the Corinthian church focused inwardly toward all the miracles could happen when they gathered. They even stopped giving to the poor. Read 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. And Paul says that's not how a Christian lives. A Christian lives to show the compassion of Christ to the world and to bring the message of Jesus to the world. And what we find in the text I read to you is, in in many ways, this light the fire under our seats sort of thing. Get out there and live the message that you know about. I was talking with Albert Tate, our high school pastor, about this. And he said, this is like mama coming home and grabbing me by the collar and saying, you know how you're supposed to live. (laughs) And that's what I see happening here. And there are three words I want to give you. Accountability. Love. And obedience. First accountability. What will motivate us to live the lives of compassion and good news in this world? Accountability for what we know. Look again at verse 11. This remarkable phrase. Since we know we know something Christians. We know what it is to fear the Lord. What brought you to Jesus? Wasn't it the acknowledgement that your life wasn't what it should be? That you needed help. You you needed forgiveness. And then you found out that God loves you. and, And knowing that you were not in and of yourself ready to meet God. You gave your sins to him and he took them. Amazingly. And you gave your life to him and he began remaking you. You knew what it was to fear the Lord. That by yourself you weren't ready to meet him. Now you know that that is also true for others. And the Apostle Paul would put it in this way in verse 10. We know that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That each one will receive what is due. That every human being that we cross must give account for how we live. And I'll tell you, even the one who is not a churchgoer, has no interest in any kind of religion, knows that the way we live must matter. Life is absurd if that is true. Uh, Goodness will be rewarded evil will be punished and we all know that we've engaged in many ways in our lives in things that are wrong and deep down you and I are not ready to meet a holy god nor are they but we also know that there is hope we found it right so what brought us here and this hope that we have found in Christ is available to all since we know What it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade people. Now, that word persuade, just make a note of it. It's a very strong word in Paul's language. It's it's like bullying people, it's like coming on really strong. I can almost hear these super apostles coming in and saying, Why do you even listen to this apostle Paul? Everywhere he goes and he talks about Jesus, he gets thrown into prison, he gets stoned, he gets left for dead. It's embarrassing. I think if the Apostle Paul came to Pasadena, you know what I envision? That we'd probably find him down on on uh, Old Town Pasadena. He'd, he'd be one of those people wearing a sandwich board, saying "Turn or burn." Or, and all of us sophisticated people would say, "I hope I hope he doesn't have an emblem for Lake Avenue Church." We're such sophisticated people here. We we don't want to. So, the, that's the way they were. This Paul is embarrassing. Because everywhere he goes, he talks about Jesus and and people hold him at arm's length. And Paul says, well, maybe I do persuade people. Maybe, maybe I come on. But let me tell you why. Because we know that people don't have forever to turn to God. This sense of urgency that penetrates this passage ending with chapter six, verse two. Now is the time of God's favor. Now, while people are alive and before God brings His work to completion, is the time that we can offer the favor of God to people. Today is the day of rescue and salvation. What God is into is in a rescue effort, taking people who are not ready to meet Him and offering to them the hope of eternal life. And you and I are those who have been entrusted with a message to carry to them. What I've wondered, what if what if somehow we had an insight into the fact that God was going to bring his work to completion tomorrow, that Christ would return? Would that change anything that you would do? Uh, I was going to say, would you write somebody a letter, but you wouldn't have time. You'd have to text message older people, get in your car and run over and see people. This sense of urgency. We are accountable for what we receive in this place. And since we know what it is to fear the Lord, we who are still being reconciled to God fully, being made right, become reconcilers, offering the gospel and hope to the world. Second word. The most powerful of the three I want to give you is the word love. Love out of what we've experienced Look at verse 13. If we are out of our mind, you see what's going on here. People say this Paul is a crazy man. (laughs) Everywhere he goes, he goes and preaches the gospel and he gets run out of the town. Okay, if we're out of our mind, it's for the sake of God. It's because God's called us to this. And I love this next phrase. But if we are in our right mind, it's because of you. You see what he's getting at there? If I hadn't had the courage To bring good news to the world. The gospel would have never gotten to you. Because they'd heard it from him. If we're in our right mind, it's because of you. And let me tell you why I do what I do. For Christ's love compels us. Because we are convinced that this one died for all. Now you know. There was a day, if, if you know your Bible, that Paul would not have admitted that he needed Christ to die for him. Read Philippians chapter three, how he used to think about he was so proud. You know, let, let me tell you about myself. He would have said, I'm a Jew of the family of God. Not only I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews, not only that, I come from the best tribe spiritually, he would say, I'm a Pharisee. If you're asking about zeal, I was the most zealous. You're asking about living righteously. I surpassed all the others. That's how he used to think about himself. But in verse 15, he had to acknowledge that even though he talked about those things that way, really he was living for himself. But now he had met Jesus. Now he had met Jesus and realized that the Son of God had to die for him. Now, brothers and sisters, this is a humbling acknowledgement. That that Paul couldn't rescue himself in spite of all of his so-called righteousness. That his life still wasn't what it was supposed to be. That he was not yet what God had created him to be. Will you and I acknowledge that today? That when we received communion, it wasn't just for that person sitting next to me. I needed Christ to die for me. And Paul was among that all. Christ had died for him. But not only for him, but for all. And what happens is when we recognize that someone loved us so much, even the son of God himself, it changes everything about us. And fundamentally, verse 15, I think I've shared this with you before. It's one of my favorite descriptions of being a follower of Jesus. He died for all that those who now live, who've been made alive to God, should no longer live for themselves, but for him. We are people. Who live for Christ. So if people make fun of us and say we're out of our minds, it doesn't matter because we live for Him. We are people who no longer live for ourselves, but for Him who died. And when we live for Him, we begin to see people as He sees people. Everyone so valuable, everyone so, so important that Jesus Christ gave His life for the all. And look how he develops it. So he says, verse 16. When when any of us have seen this and become followers of Jesus, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. How do people look at people? I'll tell you young, old, short, tall, good athlete, not good athlete, good student, not good. We divide ourselves up in so many ways. Those, those worldly point of view. Now he says we see something that transcends all those things. So now on, he says, we can't look at anyone from a worldly point of view. Though once we looked at Jesus that way. See, once I used to think of Jesus just as a rabbi. I don't know what I thought of him back then. A dangerous one. But now I know who he is. The son of God who gave his life for me and for all. And if he did that, how do I look at people? Well, I, I think every, every service I say this to you. We look at one another differently. We look at one another in this family and we see fellow people who need mercy. We're desperate people and have found it in Christ. Hallelujah. So we love to get our voices together and sing, right? Praise the one who sent his son for us. That's how we see one another in this family. How do we see the people in Pasadena and throughout Southern California? People for whom Christ died. People who can begin really to live if only they knew of Jesus. People who can know His forgiveness, who can receive His Spirit, or as Paul puts it in verse 17, if anyone, anyone is in Christ, that person becomes a new creation. The old, living for themselves, all that old, it's gone because the new in Christ has come. That means that person at work that gets on our nerves, that boss that irritates us, that's the person we most want to become a new creation. (laughs) But we know there's hope for them, right? There is hope because we have found it. And having experienced the love of God, though we don't deserve it, we see that others who may not deserve it can experience the love of God. We are compelled by the love of Christ. And the third word, obedience. If those first two words... Accountability for all that we know, all that we receive, that flows into taking it to others. Love for the experience of God that must flow into others for whom his love is available. Then the last part is, if we are followers of the Lord, it's obedience to his mandate. Have, have you ever noticed that when we become followers of Jesus, he doesn't just, just zap us up into heaven? He leaves us here. To grow but he leaves us here more than that so that we can live and have our lives have an eternal value an eternal impact in this world when we become a part of god's mission to the world and that's what he begins to talk about in verse 18 all this is from god god is the one who reconciled us to himself through christ and Verse 19 tells us what he did. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting our sins against us. And verse 21, so beautiful. This great exchange. God made the one, Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God Our lives might become to be right because because of him. This great exchange, only one who wasn't in the same mess that you and I are in, came and pulls us out. Well, we will take time in future years to think about this text more fully. But today I just want to show you this part. Verse 18. He has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Reconciliation. How does a hurting, damaged world know about God? How will they ever discover that God loves them? He's given us the ministry of reconciliation. The people that we're divided from, people divided from one another, people divided from God. That they can be made right with God and with his people and with his world. That that ministry of then serving, which is what ministry is about, serving them and showing them the love of God. When we see them in pain, loving them enough to extend ourselves, to give of ourselves to them, has been entrusted to us. That they will see the love of God flowing through us. May it happen. But not only that, verse 19. He's given us the message of reconciliation. Reconciliation. Both the ministry and the message, because simply showing love without pointing them to Jesus will offer them no eternal help. It's a combination, a message a good news that is found only in Jesus, but is found for all in Jesus. And then this remarkable statement. We, we people who are still not yet perfect, we people who are still the ones in whom and through whom God does his work, we become his ambassadors. So that when we in our weakness try to say, I want to tell you about Jesus and we feel like such failures, don't we? God empowers it through his spirit and it is as though God is making his appeal through us. Again, I don't want us to be a stagnant pond. Those of us who have received the gospel and now are being reconciled, made right with God, become reconcilers. Isn't that amazing? Our our lives can make a difference in the lives that God brings across our paths. But we must let that water that is flowing into us on a morning like this flow out so that our lives will be alive and that this church will not be a stagnant pond. I met her personally about seven years ago. One of the greatest examples of this kind of life of reconciliation that I think has been known in the last several centuries. Uh, I'm talking about Elizabeth Elliot. Uh, You know of her? Uh, I think she's been here at this church. (laughs) Elizabeth Elliot, who when she was a younger woman, um, married Jim Elliot, And having such a passion to carry the gospel to the world, Jim and a group of friends from Wheaton College went down to South America to some people they called the Aka Indians at the time. And you know what happened when they went there to bring good news. They were put to death by the very ones to whom they wanted to show the love of God. And uh, most young wives would be embittered, right? Um, Angry. But she went right down there to them. She so went right down there to them and, and gave her life there and, and uh, gave her ministry there. And what happened was so many of them came to Christ and now they are a missionary sending people themselves. So she and I were the two plenary speakers at a Congress on Reconciliation held in Okinawa, Japan. Second World War people, you know what happened there. The Okinawans, Japanese, and American talking about reconciliation. And then the national newspaper journalists were interviewing us. And one of them, just with a sense of wonder, turned to Elizabeth and said, why did you do it? (laughs) He couldn't quite understand. Why would anybody do this? As a young bride going right to the people who had put your husband to death. I was writing feverishly as she spoke. And as best as I could put it down, this is what I wrote. Although I'm sure I made a decision to go back to the Akas, it seemed to be the natural thing to do as a Christian. When we think about the incarnation, about the sinless Son of God coming to earth as a man, it's hard for us to remain separate from people. And when we think about the cross about Jesus dying for our sins, it's hard to remain angry at people simply because they have sinned. So Elizabeth summed it up. I suppose I would say I made the decision to go to the people who killed my husband because I felt compelled by the love of Christ. I felt compelled by the love of Christ. And so, my brothers and sisters at Lake, I ask us, what does the love of Christ compel us to do? You know so much. I do too. We often live our lives in comfort and hold some people at arm's length. We are God's messengers and ministers of reconciliation. What does the love of Christ compel you to do? The message that has changed our lives is not just for us. It is for all. And now is the day of God's favor. Today is the day of salvation. May this message that transforms us Now flow through us to touch this world to his glory. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we still rejoice in and have remembered today this great exchange Jesus, who knew no sin, taking on the punishment for our sin so that we could be made right. Hallelujah. Thank you, Father. And now you've entrusted us as your ambassadors with this message, both to live it and to speak of it, so that many others may come to know Jesus. Give us the courage to carry your love and word to this world. In Jesus' name, amen.